All right, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. Thank you for dropping by on this lovely afternoon in February. Well, it's Canada, so it's not a super lovely afternoon, but it's something or other. So I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. And I've got a couple of things to chat about, but I guess I'm always curious whether we want to dive straight into Q&As, a hugely fun part of uh, what it is that I do here. So, hey, how you doing? (laughs) Grandma Nazi, that's funny. But first, let me just ask you for a wee favor. You know, I don't ask you guys for too much. Uh, But he said, rubbing his hands. But um, if you could, I was, I put a lot of heart and soul into my speech about high-tech censorship in Brussels. And let me tell you something. (laughs) What a trip that was. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my word and a half. Um, So I get on the plane, and I'm thinking, because I'm not very good with time zones. I never have been. Uh, Even in the business world, I had to check three times before I'd have a conference call with someone. So I get on a flight, and I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's an eight-hour flight. So I had to go to London, and then, like, it was another hour to Brussels. And I'm like, oh, I'll just try and get some sleep on the plane. Now, I'm not much of an airplane sleeper, and I don't take pills for that, right? So I just kind of, I'll get some dozing on the plane. But, of course, I arrive at dawn in London, but because I've, what's it, five or six hours, uh, I I basically was trying to get a good night's sleep at 5.30 in the afternoon, (laughs) which does not work very well for me at all. So I get there. Uh, I basically haven't slept all night. Uh, I get a little bit of sleep, and then I go to a meeting, and then we have a dinner, which was very nice. And uh, then basically, I think I worked it out. I was giving my speech at 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> with, like, one day of non-adjustment. And so I give the speech, which was – I'm very, very pleased with it. i happy with the way it came out. And just before the speech, I took my phone, and I just propped it up to get a video, you know, just on the off chance. So it turns out afterwards that the fine EU people uh, had, had not turned on the video recorder until halfway through the speech. So that was uh, a bit of a challenge uh, afterwards. So they said, well, listen, we can just have you do the first part of the speech again. And I'm like, ow. Because, I, I you know, the cell phone audio from a big room is very accurate, is very bad. So I'm like, okay, well, I could give the speech again, but because uh, I'll need the audio. I have the video on my cell phone, but I need the audio. So anyway, I went up, but they said we only like it's a 40-minute speech. I, I thought I'll just do the whole thing again, right? So I get up, and I'm, uh, but I only have 20 minutes. They only have 20 minutes of otherwise the cameras overheat or something like that. The heat signature of philosophy is quite intense these days. So I get up and I give my speech. Now, we had to clear the room because I didn't want people chatting in the background of my speech because we did have someone who apparently had the bubonic plague throughout most of the speech. But so what I did was I went up and I gave the speech to an empty room. And I was hoping to just use a little bit of it where, you know, we had we had issues or whatever. (laughs) And I couldn't give the whole thing. But anyway, so I get back home and... I get the speech shipped to me, and it's it's you know it's nice you know they they mic'd me up it it it's you know good good lighting and all that not cell phone, <laughs> so I'm like okay I could work with this I can I can Franken stitch this thing together, <clears throat> but as as it turns out behind me I don't know if you can see this in the speech itself but behind me when I'm giving the speech is this row of windows. <laughs> 
Now, the row of windows, you can fairly clearly see that the entire hall is empty. <laughs> so I look like I'm literally a crazy guy who's the janitor, who's put on a nice suit, who's screaming at an empty room. And so as it turned out, <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe I can blur out. now. Oh, forget it. Oh, forget it. Just forget it. Uh, I, I just went with what I had. So, yeah, I'm sorry the audio quality. They gave me 22K audio, which was not ideal. But uh, I think it came together okay. But anyway, the favor I have to ask is if you guys could spread the speech around, that would be great. I was pleased with it. And it's a great mystery. Maybe you guys could let me know in the chat here what you think might be the issue. But my live speeches generally don't do as well as just like I like being out there. I really do. And yet, my speeches don't do as well as they often do in, uh, uh, when I'm in the studio. So I don't know why. I don't know why. I like doing speeches. I think I'm good at them. But generally, my uh, videos do better if I'm just in the studio. I do not know why. But uh, anyway, so... I got a couple of things to talk about. I'll see how the uh, Super Chats go. Of course, you can do a Super Chat up here. And listen, I, I really do try and get to it. So the issue is, just for those of you who want to know the technicalities of all this stuff, uh, the issue is that the Super Chats kind of fly by. And then if I get into a long topic, by the time I get to where they were, they ain't there no more, unless there's something I'm missing. So I'm sorry about that. But um, I will certainly get to the best of it. Let's do a couple first, and then we'll talk about... Well, what's be, what's be going on politically? And I would just say it's really nice to be able to sit down with you guys for an afternoon and, and talk about ideas. It's a really, really great pleasure. And thank you uh, so much, everyone, for dropping by, of course. So, De Vincent A. McFarlane, I'm never really sure if these are real names or not, says, hey, Steph. Oh, and also, if you want to uh, help out the show, yeah, you can uh, share the video. I was very pleased to be speaking at the uh, European Union Parliament. And also, if you could uh, go to freedomainradio.com slash donate or free domain, you just type in free domain, it'll take you to the donation page, at least until a new website is up, and you can help things out, or of course, you can give me some super chats here, very, very much appreciated. All right. Hey, Steph, can I get your thoughts on going to a military college? I'm looking to attend one before going to law school. Maybe I could get on the show. Some military college, I mean, there's certainly some stuff that you'll get out of military college that would be vastly preferable to going to some sort of artsy college. Uh, I tweeted about this, that the people I know who are like real solid on empirical reality, objective facts, truth, reason, and evidence who aren't into this postmodernist kind of garbage, they're all people who've had like manual, hard manual labor jobs at some point in your life. Hard manual labor. You know, if you just live in your head, like you read a lot of books and you, you're online and you debate and, and, and it can easily, you can easily end up in this subjectivist universe. Like I think that some of the people who are into this, the world is a simulation stuff. Um, I know some of them are not this way, but I think some of them are. If you have like a, not just a hard physical labor job, but a dangerous physical labor job, it's really tough to buy into this subjectivity of the universe theory. If you, uh, like, okay, I'll tell you, just tell you a brief story. It's sort of, this is what I mean. And sorry, <laughs> the Super Chats slide by. So when I worked up north after high school, and it's just, like I talk about this, it's foundational to the way that I think. Because you work up north, if you screw up, you can die. 
I'm not kidding you. You can die like that, like that, because you are days away from a hospital. You know, if, if you got injured, well, first of all, you could just die straight up. You got injured. People had to get on the radio. This is way back in the day, right? It weren't even sat phones back then. You have to get on the radio. You got to wait till someone's at the base. They got to fuel up a plane that may or may not be available. They got to fly out to you. They got to land on the ice, assuming that it can take it. And then they've got to fly you out. And then you've got to get to a hospital, which could be another day away. So you could be days away from a hospital. And you really have to be careful out there. Be careful out there. It's a very dangerous environment. It went down to minus 30, sometimes even minus 35. We had to use jet fuel to keep our tent warm uh, out there. It was a prospector's tent, so it was like a little canvas hut. But a guy who was best, uh, uh, one of my good friends from when I was young, he was best, one of the best men at my wedding. We were bugging out the next morning. We were leaving and we had one more sample to get. So we would take these big, they were called Pianja drills. We would take these drills out. You're on snowshoes, it's really deep snow. You take these drills out. And then you you put the drill, you pound the drill in with a hammer, and then you put the drill on top. And it, goes, and it drives the drill back down. And then you screw another one on top until you hit bedrock. And then you get the soil sample because gold is heavy, so it sinks down to where the bedrock is. And then you pan it to see if you can find any gold and, and see if you can find any indication of where there may be gold. So we had one more sample to get. It was pretty far away. And the, fl- the plane was coming at like 8 o'clock the next morning, which meant we would have had to get up at like 4 or 5 in the morning to go and get this sample to have it done. So we decided, even though you're not really supposed to go out at night at all because it's really dark. And we decided, ah, you know, I think we can get there. Let's get there. We'll hurry. We'll get the sample. We'll bring it back. And then we won't have to get up so crushingly early, right? So I'll save that for when I'm doing speeches in Brussels. So we head out and... We're on snowshoes, we're crossing the lake, and it's hard to find the right location. This, again, this is before GPSs, you name it, right? So we had to get a map and you compass and you're just trying to find the right. It's important you get the right location because let's say you find a bunch of gold, but it's in the wrong location <laughs> on the map. Then you end up spending, you can spend millions of dollars trying to find something that, that is, you know, 500 meters somewhere else, right? And it's a really, really bad thing to do. So you've got to be really precise. So long story short, we went out there, we got our samples, and it was still kind of light. We started heading back. And then the funny thing that happens up north, this is way up north, this is north of Nikina, this is like north, like fly out. The strange thing that happens up north is, man, when, when night falls, I mean, it falls like a door coming over. It just, boom, you know, you go from, hey, I think it's getting, ah, where is everything? <laughs> Everything's gone. There was no, it was cloudy, there was no stars out, no moon. And flashlights don't actually, they'll show you what's in front of you, but how do you get back through this wilderness to the tent? And, you know, you get these sudden chills, right? The sudden chills, like these very northern European white boy chills, like, man, this could be it. Like, we could freeze to death because it's really cold and it's so easy to get lost. And it had been very windy, right? So you can, you say, oh, well, we'll just follow our tracks back and so on. Yeah, well, some of it was over ice and, and it was windy. So, and also other people had tracked around, like we tracked around this area before. So it wasn't quite so simple. And we, um, so we knew we couldn't get back through the woods. It was not like, it's so easy to get turned around, so easy to get lost. 
And I don't know what would have happened overnight. I mean, it would have been very, very, very tough. Because you can say, well, you know, maybe we'll survive. But what about the tip of your nose? I guess it's going to turn black and you're going to end up with some Michael Jackson monstrosity as a beak? I don't know. So we decided to try and make our way back along the riverway, along the path that would lead to the big lake because we were off to one side of a frozen lake. So uh, that was a quiet and long journey. Now, not to mention, you know, other wildlife that might be out there. But anyway, so we get around the corner, and God bless us. There were two other guys in the camp with us, and they realized that we were out. And so what they did was they hung a bunch of lights. They climbed a tree, and they hung a bunch of lights up in a tree, a bunch of lanterns up in a tree. And then they tied some flashlights. And, and so it was like we were striding towards Christmas. And we couldn't see it, couldn't see it. We came around a corner, and we see just off in the distance. And it was just one of these trick lines of sight through through the ice, across the ice, through the trees. And it was glorious. It was literally like heaven has exploded in the distance, and now we get to live. <laughs> and so we, we made it back, and, and it was fine. But th- that story is important because you, you can't talk your way out of that. Like, you get a bad grade. Maybe you can sit down and talk your way about stuff. You, 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 there's no excuses. Nature doesn't care. That's why I wrote in university a very short poem, not a very good poem, but a poignant poem for me. And it went like this. Two men in a wood, one bad, one good, are both eaten by wolves. Evil guys taste pretty much the same as good guys to the wolves. So if you've had a job with significant physical risk, you're dealing with brute, raw nature. It's really tough to get into this postmodernist. Nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. It's like, nope, sorry, Hamlet, you fail. Survival in the Woods 101. And that's just really, really important stuff. A couple of life threats. I remember we used to, when we had a lot of drills, we'd sometimes, we'd have a snowmobile. If we could get around on a snowmobile, we would use it. I was sitting on the back and we were about to go down a steep hill and I'm like, ah, I got this kind of funny instinct. I'm like, okay, I think I'll walk. And then... The guy driving the snowmobile went down, and then all the drill bits flew off and went spearing through the air and, like, landed in this Pulp Fiction bullet hole ring around him. And I wouldn't have done very well if I'd been sitting on the back there either. And you're just like, ooh, ooh, that could have gone just about any which way but loose. So when you've had those kinds of jobs. So military college, for a long story, military college will give you some of that base reality. You know, you can talk your way in and out of various intellectual perspectives, particularly with weak-minded people, a.k.a. professors. But, you know, your gun either works or it doesn't. And so I will point out that there will be some benefits, but uh, if it tempts you with the military, that may not be particularly great. All right. Skunk and Funk 420. (laughs) Wait, what time is it? Oh, three minutes. Blaze it, F-Jot. Um... Second try, beyond taking, beyond taking agency away from the cluster B, is there any reason why none of your material address the phenomenon of narcissistic borderline personality disorder recently left an abusive relationship three months in? Um, well, I mean, there are fairly technical terms related to psychology and psychiatry, and I try not to inhabit the technical language of professions for which I am uneducated and unqualified. So I'll talk about dysfunctional people, irrational people, anti-rational people. But if I start using these technical terms, which lay people, you know, you're allowed to call someone a narcissist. You're just not allowed to do it in a way that people think it's some sort of formal diagnosis from a professional. 
But uh, my concern is that if I start using these terms, I have to do a lot of research to make sure that I'm using these terms correctly in the nomenclature of the profession. And, uh, you know, that's not an easy thing to do, to, to substitute, you know, some reading for a thorough education in psychology. So I will talk about difficult or dysfunctional people, but as far as BPD goes or uh, narcissistic personality disorder or megalomania or, or all these things, and plus, of course, the, the terms will change. So that's that's particularly why I will talk about dysfunctional people, but not in particular use these technical terms, just so you understand. I hope that that says there's still a ton of people on the other notification waiting for you to start. What does that mean? Is this not the right notification? <laughs> Could you tell them to come here if that's not the right notification? I only set up one, so I don't know why there's more than one. Anyway, uh, sorry about that. Thanks, Dan. All right, what else do we have here? All my notes are for naught. Ah, it's more fun to chat with you guys anyway. Uh, okay, Mocking Monica says, how much do you know about Gnosticism? In my opinion, so much of our society is based on Gnosticism. Two examples, Puritanism and Progressivism. Agree? Thoughts? Well, thanks for the super chat, dude, but I wouldn't know how to start with, with Gnosticism. But I will tell you this, I will look it up. So um, I'm sure it will come up soon in the show, but I can't give you anything in particular that's, that's handy or useful at the moment. Morgan Davis says, Stefan, I did not graduate high school. I could not handle the insane government structure of my high school. Should I go for a GED or continue working a physically demanding job? Um, yeah, I think I think a GED, what is it, Chris Rock says, a good enough diploma. I think a GED is, is a fine thing to do. I mean, hopefully you can stay away from some of the crazy stuff that's in the content of the curriculum. And there's some useful stuff that you can learn in high school. I got some good discipline through mathematical studies and all of that. So um, I think it's uh, worth doing it. Not graduating high school. See, okay, like, this is the basic thing. If you're going to avoid the general train track that people take to become successful, right? So if you're going to say, well, I'm I'm going to only have high school. I'm maybe not going to finish high school or, or whatever it is. That's fine as far as I am. In fact, it may be beneficial. The more people I can talk out of going, to art, going into arts degrees, the better. But if you are going to sidestep the general stepping stones on the path to success, then you've got to start building your own bridges. You've got to start building your own structure completely. So nobody cares that, uh, what is it, Bill Gates and, and uh, Steve Jobs, that they didn't finish University, nobody particularly cares that Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak's first foray into electronics was an illegal device that fooled the phone company into thinking you were making local calls when you were making, in fact, long-distance calls. This is back in the day when long-distance was ferociously expensive. The long-distance relationship tax prior to email, internet, Skype, and so on was – I remember back in the day having a girlfriend in Vancouver when I was living in Toronto, and it was 30 bucks an hour to chat, and this is – it's a lot of money now. It's a heck of a lot of money back then. And we had to wait till after 11 where it was like two-thirds off or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a big, big price. And the worst thing is when you're fighting with your girlfriend on the phone and you're paying 30 bucks an hour. <laughs> I'm broke and annoyed. So, yeah, anyway, long distance is crap. So, so if you're not going to do that stuff, then start building your own business. Become a real entrepreneur. Read about economics. Read about business. Uh, uh, figure out what you can take whether formal or informal, online, get your skills up, go build something of your own, and then I think things will go well. But don't get stuck in the, well, I didn't finish high school, 
and I'm just going to work a menial job. Like, don't do that. Like, if you finish, don't don't finish high school. Fine. I think a GED is a good idea. But then uh, go really make carve your own path. Like, don't just don't just jump off the train tracks and then hang around by the train tracks. If you're going to jump off the train tracks, go anywhere you want, but just go somewhere uh, in in real focus. Chris Nugent says, thank you very much. Says, please make a best of compilation for the call-in show. Well, I'll tell you something. I have a call-in show. I actually have a bunch of call-in shows um, that are uh, on deck um, uh, for a variety of reasons. One of them is with a couple who make pornography. That was quite something. (laughs) So that may, in fact, make the best of compilation for the call-in show. But here's the problem. This is the kind of thing that I'd probably crowdsource because for me, I have done – what is it, 500 call-in shows, each of which can be many hours long. So, you know, how long does it take for me to go through and find the best of? That might be something. If you want to set up something to crowdfund, crowdsource this and get me time codes and so on, then I can put together a best of. But I'm telling you, it's not something that I would have the time to pursue at this point. And, uh, you know, if it's really valuable, maybe I can pay you for it, right? I mean, if you guys want to make some money, you know, come up with some good ideas and I'm happy to, uh, to, uh, to work on them. All right, Uh, let's see here. Uh, Any chance you'd ever go back on Joe Rogan? Thank you for everything you do. Love you, Steph. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's from Matt Waters. Thank you very much. Uh, No, I don't believe that there is any chance I would go back on uh, Joe Rogan. So for those who don't know the history, uh, I'm still grateful to have had the opportunity to talk to Joe Rogan, or as he's affectionately known sometimes, Toe Rogan, I guess because of his hairdo, but then I could be Toe Steph. And uh, he, um, uh, his, his interest and his graciousness and his good humor and his most enjoyable conversation was a big part of helping this show um, grow five or six years ago. So I did, uh, uh, well, I did two really enjoyable shows with Joe. One was just in a hotel room. And then the other one was down in his studio where he fed me bulletproof coffee until my eyeballs rotated. And really enjoyed them, liked him a lot. And then I don't know exactly what happened, but my my guess is something like this. So uh, he apparently is friends with Anna Kasparian ah! <laughs> and um, uh, from from the Young, Young Turks. And I did a video criticizing something Anna Kasparian did. And then I think Joe went on a show with Anna Kasparian. And then Joe invited me down and... You know, it's kind of like an ambush. He dug up every negative thing that he could find about me. And, and uh, you know, it was one of these like, uh, hey, you know, <laughs> right? Now, people say, okay, well, that's – that happens. That's fair. And, you know, I kind of – I'm kind of half and half about that. I don't do ambush stuff. Like I don't invite people on with the – with sort of with the implicit promise of a reasonable and, and positive interaction and then jump them with my list of like – every horrible thing that I've ever heard about them. Um, if somebody, like if I have a critique of someone, then I'll say, please come on, like if you want to come on the show, then I will critique this and this and this. And so they can make the choice about whether they want to invest their sort of time and energy into coming on the show. And um, so he, yeah, he invited me down and I, I went down, you know, my friend Joe is having a show. And it was like, boom, you know, it was like really, really harsh. Now, Okay, so we can say, well, Joe Rogan has, has um, uh, you know, he really likes to take people on with their tough issues, right? 
And I haven't really watched the show since. It was an unpleasant experience as a whole, mostly because it was kind of surprising. You know, like when I went on um, uh, uh, Dave Rubin, right? So Dave and I did a couple of shows, which were very nice. He was on my Christmas show, a Christmas special, nice shows. And then, you know, he invites me down and, and then it's like, boom, cult leader, boom, race and IQ, boom, you know, relationship crapper or whatever it is, right? And again, it's like, it just, you know, like, there's times when I was in Australia, New Zealand, like, I know they're going to be hostile interviews. And so I just go in and, and uh, you know, it's, you know what you're getting into. But, you know, when you are invited on people's shows who are very friendly with you and they don't tell you ahead of time that it's going to be like a hit job, I just think that's kind of rude. Like, just give me the choice. Give me the choice about whether I want to. I may have gone down anyway, but just give me uh, give me the choice. So... That is um, not to be expected, <laughs> that imminent thing. Now, with regards to Joe, you know, does he confront a lot of people? I guess he does. I did see a debate with him and Stephen Crowder on on um, uh, marijuana and, and its effects and so on. But um, Joe did have the singer from Aerosmith, Steve Tyler, on the show. Now, Steve Tyler, back in the day, um, you just look up what happened with him in a girl who was very young. I won't get into the details here. You can go look it up yourself. But to my mind, absolutely horrific. Absolutely horrific, right? Well, was any of that brought up, you know, by Mr. Moral Enforcer and high standards? Yeah, well, of course not, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still appreciative of the fact that uh, I went on Joe's show and uh, the first two were very helpful and we had uh, differences of opinion, more, I think, in terms of just the aesthetics of friendship than uh, anything else. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he's doing fine work and I wish him well. But, uh, yeah, I would. <laughs> that's not a hold my breath kind of scenario. And, yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's the reality. All right. So thank you very much for that question. <clears throat> David says, would you ever make a video on the true history of feminism from saying men have oppressed women throughout history in the Declaration of Sentiments and the treatment of Erin Pitsy to their current actions. Ah, there's so many great projects. So I sort of wish uh, I could sort of photocopy or clone myself, you know. Instead of a forehead, we're going to have an 8, a 12, a 16, or a 20 head. But uh, so many great, and that would be a great documentary to do. Uh, and for those who don't know, so Erin pitsy has been on the show, and, and you should look her up. Um, P-I-Z-Z-E-Y, Erin, uh, like Moran. And uh, she uh, she set up one of the first women's shelters, and then she also set up, she wanted to set up a shelter for men. And uh, she was just viciously attacked by feminists, and a, I think she suffered about every single thing that you could imagine, uh, and uh, because, you know, she had sympathy. I mean, it's, it's sort of what happened with Cassie J, and you should check out hoaxedmovie.com, H-O-A-X-E-D, hoaxedmovie.com. Uh, for uh, myself and, and Jordan Peterson and Scott Adams and uh, Cassie J, uh, in particular, Scaramucci, a bunch of other people, about fake news, because she did a great movie called The Red Pill, which you should watch. It's, it's exquisitely and majestically and, and sensitively and powerfully done movie about, um, well, some of the suffering that men go through and and she just got pilloried by them by the media and after after they were big fans of her for doing movies that were sort of more pro-feminist they just it was horrendous and there's this wonderful bit where where cassie j i think she's on australian tv and they're just you know going at her like a, a bunch of 
vicious verbal pit vipers with venom where their hearts should be. And she says, you know, we always talk about women. We just, I, can we just talk about men's suffering just for a few minutes, just for five minutes? And I'm like, no, can't. Because men need to be enslaved for the socialist welfare state, right? Men contribute the majority of taxes. Men cannot be allowed to self-organize. They cannot be allowed to become self-aware any more than whites can, which is why you always hear misogynist, Nazi, white supremacists, right? Just not allowed, not allowed. Well, that's what they say. That's not necessarily what we have to do. So, yeah, I, I would love to do something like that. Um, the first thing that I do when I think of a project is I would go and look up and see who else has done what. And if there's something out there that's good, I'd recommend that rather than – so I don't know if there are documentaries out there. I'm sure there are. It's a big topic. So I go through these um, – I mean, I don't know if anybody's interested in this kind of stuff. Maybe – yes, maybe I'll keep it short. But as as you know, I, I go through, you know, like Dylan, like Neil Young, like Queen, like yes, you know, you go through these phases. You know, you get your jazz phase, you got your blues phase, you got your bluegrass phase if you're <laughs> Steve Martin. And I go through these phases, right, where a particular topic just grabs me. And I find it absolutely fascinating and I dive into it and I devour it. I'm like a, you know, a kid hopped up on nine cokes, jumping into a ball pit and swimming around. I, I get in there and, and dig in, find the experts, find the data, put the presentations together. And then I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm done, right? Uh, I'm done. And I feel like I have got what I need to know. And and usually what's happened is my interest, combined with other people, has sparked a general curiosity about it in the population as a whole. And then, you know, we can kind of move on from there. So <sighs> feminism, men's rights, and so on was quite some time ago. And if something comes back up, that could be helpful. And the race and IQ stuff is... You know, when was the last time I interviewed a, a researcher on race and intelligence? Well, or intelligence as a whole. Well, that's been some years, and uh, there are other topics that I'm more interested in now. So it would feel a little bit like going back, uh, but uh, that's just I, I, I'm I'm desperate to stay interested. I'm desperate to stay interested because I know what I do is really really important, and if I get bored, I won't be any good at what I do. So I'm I'm really really desperate to stay interested in philosophy, and because philosophy is the all discipline then you can do anything in the realm of philosophy and uh, provide value. So that's why I'm constantly looking for uh, new topics or new things, right? It's like the single mom thing and all that. did it for a while. And anyway, all right. Mach Dave one. Why only one? Steph, I am single in my late 30s and am looking for a virtuous wife. I used to be a Christian now, a non-leftist atheist. Yeah, it's important. Would it be wise to rejoin the church and live my life as a cultural Christian in order to find one? It's a great question. It's a great question. Yes. 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 Oh, they're going to hate me in some circles. I, um... I hunger for God. Wouldn't it be great? It is a consummation devoutly to be wished. Wouldn't it be great? An overarching intelligence that was going to have it all come out right. That you could surrender your will to a larger power and know that you were going to be taken care of. That that the evil were going to get their punishment in a court of infinity. When the fact that evil people 
make a lot of money and get away with a lot of crap? Wouldn't it be nice to know that there was a whiplash, backlash in the universe that would catch them by the feet and upend them over a lake of fire? God, that would be great! It wouldn't remove from me the responsibility to be moral, to be good, to be virtuous. But by God, would it be nice to not have the weight of the enforcement of justice on the mere puny shoulders of we few mortals that divine justice with the fabric bone marrow and ether of the universe that we were in a stage play of ethical infinity God I burn for such a world and if it's right I may burn after it but now it is that very hunger for the divine that has me be so careful I saw on a comment on my video on tax censorship at the European Union. You're like, Steph, why are you resisting Christianity? That's what I was raised in. It was what I was raised in. It was the origin and the essence of reality for me that mere material reality was just a pale shadow cast by the eternal height of the divine. We live in an empty, useless, distracting antechamber to the real business of life, which is virtue and glory and worship in heaven or hell. Mm. I miss, I miss all that. I do, I miss, I hunger for the divine, particularly when you see the onrushing tsunami of disasters going to strike the Western world. Yeah, I hunger for it. So the question is, when it comes to having a virtuous wife, to have a virtuous wife, you need you need to have a woman who believes in virtue, right? You have to. You need to have a woman who believes in virtue, objective good and evil, right and wrong. Where are you going to find that outside of a Christian bride? You may find it in objectivists. Yeah. Maybe. But, nah, should I? How many people do I want to annoy in one live stream? Uh, let's just keep it at that. You, but where are you most likely to find it? You're not going to find it in a postmodernist. You're not going to find it in a subjectivist. You're not going to find it in a feminist or a socialist. So where are you going to find your virtuous bride? you're going to find the virtuous pride, most likely, among a Christian woman. Now, you can say to her that you can talk to her about your atheism, your agnosticism, and so on. But I don't think it's crazy at all. I really don't. If I were looking for a bride at the moment, let's say I was Muslim, right? If I was looking for another bride, if I was looking for a bride at the moment, then, yeah, I, I would absolutely seriously look into Christianity uh, and Christian women. There are some good, stout-hearted, solid, dependable 
women and some wonderful women in that environment. And I had that situation with a woman I was not quite dating, but we were thinking about dating, but I was an atheist. She was a Christian. And she was up and she said, hey, my dad's an atheist. You, you can sleep in on uh, Sunday. I'll take the kids to church. It's fine with me. And I was like, yeah. I said, the only way that this could work is if we tell children about religion when they're young, but they get to choose religion and their faith when they're older. But we can't tell them it's true when they're young because we don't know. Or at least I, at the time, thought, believed that it wasn't true. We couldn't get past that, so we didn't date. And I respect that integrity in her. I probably do. So you got to find, well, actually, I just got an email yesterday. I just got an email, and it's fine. The people said that they could share it, that I could share it with them. But I got an email from people, yeah, they met in a free domain radio meetup group. They got married, and they're having their second or third kid. They sent me the picture, and it's like, that's beautiful. So, yeah, you can find a great woman in the realm of philosophy. And believe it or not, it's not a sausage fest on this channel. There's a significant number of women on this uh, channel, so... Yeah, it's not crazy at all. It's not crazy at all. It's John, says loving the AMAs. Thank you very much. The American, the American Medical Association is wonderful. RM says, uh, or asks, do you see a limit to the non-aggression principle? It's okay, interspecies, eating meat. But what about interrace, ethnicity, nation, to protect a boundary of a nation from aggression, aggressive low IQ group without free will? Well, here's the thing. We already tried relying on the nation to protect our borders, right? That, that experiment has been tried. And we can look at the current wave of migration and we can say, well, that's bad. It's like, okay, well, what about the previous waves of endless warfare between white Christian nations of the First World War, of the Napoleonic Wars, of the Franco-Prussian Wars, of you name it, right? Second World War. I mean, the, the takeover of Eastern Europe by the Soviet bloc empire after the Second World War, well, during, and then just retained it a lot of times. So we've been relying on states to protect our borders for centuries, and if it's not migration, it's war. And a lot of it, by the way. So I don't think it's going to do us any good to rely on states to protect our borders. There has to be another way to protect the integrity of culture, of geographical regions. So the question is, well, what? Well, in the long run, we have to have a stateless society. No government. No government means no welfare state. No welfare state means... No giant incentive to come to your country. I mean, if you're some person in Somalia, you've maybe got an IQ of 80. Is it worth making this massive trip, paying thousands of euros to human smugglers a lot of times? Just look up Lauren Southern's borderless for more on this. It's going to be out in a month or two. But is it worth spending thousands of euros to go all the way across Europe? Let's say England is a stateless society. Let's say that you go all the way over there. What's going to happen? Are people going to employ you? Well, you've got to learn English, most for the most part, right? Because there won't be a big Somali community there because it's only there because of the welfare state. 
So you've got to learn English. So you've got an IQ of 80. How long is it going to take for you to learn a complex, highly differentiated language like English? Years. What are you going to live on? Oh, and by the way, all the jobs that you can do are being automated. So there's really no demand for you. What are you going to live on? How you like? It won't happen. It won't happen. So, I mean, look how far Canada is from the third world. Anyway, so if you want the government to protect your borders, then the government has the power of taxation and redistribution, which means, hey, you get to protect your borders at the same time as you're creating a giant welfare state, free health care, free schooling, free roads, free education for everyone and their dog who can make it to your shore. Oh, and then they can sponsor all their elderly relatives who've never paid into your healthcare system but get to consume it like jackals on a zebra. I'm not trying to compare people to jackals. I'm just saying that they eat it up, right? So that's... Everyone tries to fix these problems within the framework of statism. But when you give the government that power to control you, to control your money, to go into debt on your behalf, to sign near-infinite debt obligations on the part of children, when you give the government that power, the government will not do what you want with that power. It will do what the government wants to do with that power and the government's friends. It won't do what you want to do. I'm not in control of the government. You're not in control of the government. There are lots of speculations about who's really in control of the government. But suffice to say, it ain't you, it ain't me, and it never will be. So you, they offer you things. This is a satanic bargain, right? They offer you things in return for your obedience. This the, the great deal that the devil of the state made with the boomers. We will give you old age pensions. We will give you unemployment insurance. We will give you subsidized health care. But we're not going to raise your taxes. It's all going to be funded through debt. Oh, and we're going to have a war all over the place at the same time. Well, that, of course, is a devil's bargain. Oh, I want these things. Well, what do you have to pay for the things that you want, for the things that the state is going to give you? What do you have to pay for those things? Well, everything, I fear, everything. So we have to have a different, uh, a different approach to solving these problems. It's like... We've got to go from superstition to science. There's not the right configuration of superstition that's going to give you science. You need a whole different way of thinking. And that's why stateless society is the way to go. All right. Let me just see here. I want to make sure I didn't miss anyone. Thank you guys so much for your very kind support. All right. Did that one? Did that one? Joshua R. Paulson. His name was Joshua R. Paulson. I remember that from last time. Says, as someone in high tech, I dread the inevitable consequences of political speech on my income. But I think if I move away from where I am, the cost of living will be dramatically improved. Any advice? Okay, let me see. Sorry, Joshua. I'm just going to make sure I understand this one. As someone in high tech, I dread the inevitable consequences of political speech on my income. But I think if I move away from where I am, the cost of living will be dramatically improved. Any advice? 
Oh, so are you saying that if you move out into the country, it's going to be cheaper for you to live, and so you'll have less need to be politically correct? Yeah, I mean that's that's white flight. That's that's the whole thing, right? Which is uh, um, because uh, non-whites, in particular blacks and and Hispanics, are so pumped full of anti-white racism, uh, it becomes a pretty toxic environment quite often for. Uh, whites to to be in that situation or that environment, right? And and this is another reason why if you're not white, you really don't know what racism is because you people support you. People are like, oh wow, someone was racist against you. That's terrible. I'm going to support you and attack the racist. But um, I could put out this tweet. You should really follow me on Twitter if you're not at Stefan Molyneux. I put out this tweet where I was because you know every time the native. Americans, right? The Indians, the indigenous population of the Americas. Ah, whites, smallpox, genocide, blah, 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 right? Well, 90% of the natives were killed by smallpox, which nobody understood. They didn't even know about the existence of germs. They knew something about transmission, and during the Black Death, they would nail people up in their own houses to die rather than have them go out and spread the disease, but they didn't really understand it very well. They certainly didn't understand things like, well, this population has not been exposed to this virus because there's the Atlantic Ocean between us. So, right, they don't know anything about that. They don't understand anything about that. And so the majority of the natives were killed by smallpox, vast majority. And it's because they were fleeing from smallpox that they spread the disease. This is how little anybody understood about it. Because they'd get sick and they'd flee to a new, a new teepee village or they'd flee to some new settlement of indigenous people, and they'd say, oh, this is terrible disease, We've got, right? And then they'd, that's how it would spread. That damn smallpox. So, of course, Europeans, whites, are blamed for smallpox, but are they praised for creating the smallpox vaccine that eliminated one of the greatest scourges in the world? Smallpox was an astounding killer, far greater than war. A disease worse than war, like in the British Navy... More sailors died of scurvy than ever died from enemy combat. Far more. So the guy who figured out, hey, take some oranges and lemons and you'll be fine, that guy was one of the greatest contributors to the power of the Royal Navy, which sailed on vitamin C rather than (laughs) the high seas. Vitamin C's rather than the high seas. There's a rap song in there somewhere, but not a very popular one. (laughs) I'll tell you that. So... So all the Europeans came to the Americas and spread these diseases. Well, first of all, tuberculosis came across, believe it or not, by seals. Seals brought tuberculosis across those damn white supremacy seals. (laughs) And also, does anyone ever say, well, the natives in North America gave the Europeans syphilis and smoking. Killed a lot of people. Or do people get really angry at the Mongols who in a conflict with the, in, in a military conflict with the Europeans introduced the Black Death into Europe where it killed 50 million people or about 60% of the European population? Those damn Mongols? You never hear about it. Why? Because Mongols won't cough up money if you push their guilt buttons. Mongols don't have guilt buttons about Genghis Khan. They have statues of Genghis Khan all over the place. He's on their money. He's on their money. The rampant raping warlord. Anyway. So, 
quality of life is so important. And, and, you know, as you get older, it becomes important, more important, right? Quality of life is really, really important. Live in a place where you're comfortable, live in a place where you're happy. All right. Let me get um, other chats. See what I got here. want to make sure I didn't miss anyone. Uh, Lewis. Reese Springer, now I've got a screen that's very close indeed. Uh, Lewis Reese Springer says, Stefan, do you view it impossible to have a state without a welfare system, such as a system modeled after the early American Republic, but with a constitutional amendment against the welfare state? No. No. You know, Constitution's a piece of paper. And, I mean, if it's, it's you know, it's an interesting mental exercise that many people have, have sort of thought about to say, by the way, is the sound still all right? I'm a little further back from the mic just because otherwise I'm real close. But um, think about the founding fathers and, and look at what America has turned into. And, and what would they think? Well, they would think, well, boy, we, we, have, we, we faffed that up enormously, right? We faffed that up terribly. So, yeah, it's... Um, You can't have a state without a welfare system. They, they always end up the same way. They always end up the same way. And in particular, when women get the vote. <laughs> right? I mean, people say repeal the 19th. Like, repeal all of it. Um, when women get the vote, women prefer security to freedom. See, freedom is a meritocracy. And in freedom, each man believes that he's going to do better. And he generally does. And, and people can all win in a meritocracy, right? So let's say uh, someone has a, um, there's a meritocracy and therefore only the best technology wins the day. Well, because the best technology wins the day, people like I can run a channel that has more subscribers than USA Today and almost as many as NBC and so on. Like just, just in this little studio, you saw the <laughs> massive technology going on in the backdrop there, right? So I'm winning because there was a meritocracy in technology. I'm winning because there was a meritocracy in internet delivery. I'm winning because there is a meritocracy in routers. So the meritocracy allows men as a whole to win. But the meritocracy doesn't interest women that much. Because women just like, a guy can go hungry, a guy can live in his car, but you have kids, they need food, they need health care, they need shelter, like there's no, they need diapers, they need whatever, right? They need everything. And you can't postpone it because they're babies, right? <laughs> They'll just cry till they, you can't do it. So women need security. And they used to get security by being married to a good, reliable male provider. That's how you, they used to get security. Now they get security by running to the state, which is perfectly rational in a resource acquisition model. It's perfectly rational. The state is more reliable then your husband. Your husband could get sick and doesn't have insurance. Your husband could leave you. Your husband could die. Your husband could decide that he wants to learn how to penis paint Grandma Moses portraits. I mean, I don't know, right? It could be any number of things that he wants to do. He could just wake up tomorrow and say, oh, I'm so tired of this rat race. I can't take it anymore. I cannot get up and go in and sit in that cubicle and kowtow to that boss, I can't do it anymore. I want to dance. <laughs> Whatever. I, I want to go pick grapes in Queensland. I get anything. Now, of course, 
you try as a woman to to get a reliable guy up front, a guy who's going to stick around, who's going to go the distance, who's going to be responsible and all that, right? You, you try for all of that. But sometimes you're wrong. Now, for the most part, the women who say, well, he just changed. He just, you know, he was such a great guy and he was wonderful and he was nice and he was charming and he was, but he just changed. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, it didn't. Personality is remarkably stable throughout life. If you ever want to know how stable personality is, just go to your high school reunion. I uh, accidentally went to one. I was going out with a friend of mine, and we, he lived near my old high school. And we saw that there was this high school reunion. So we're like, okay, let's go. Uh, you know, normally, you're like, you dress up. You know, I was like half scraggly. I just like wearing a jeans and a T-shirt or something like that. So, <laughs> so I went to the high school reunion. And everybody was exactly the same. The sad people were still sad. The manic people were still manic. The peppy people were still peppy. And, you know, I, I've hung out with some people that I met after high school in various places. And, yeah, the same. And what did everyone say to me? Man, you're the same. <laughs> you're exactly the same as you were in high school. Nah, people don't change. Now... I mean, I'm a big fan of therapy, and, and you can unclutter your life, and you can, you can maintain that youthful energy with self-knowledge, and you can become a better person. So philosophy is, but fundamentally, do you change? Like a sociopath is a sociopath. Say, so, oh, well, they're very good at covering up. They're very good at, right? Come on, there are signs. You're saying a sociopath doesn't have a trail of victims. He doesn't have dysfunctional relationships. He doesn't have debt. He doesn't have problems. Of course he does. But... People don't like, if, if, like a woman who marries the wrong guy, a woman who marries a bad guy, she doesn't like to go back and say, what were the signs? But listen, I've had enough of these calls over the last 12 years with women. There's always something. There's always a sign. And usually, usually, there's a lot more than one. Always a sign. But of course, that doesn't serve the women, right? Because then they can't play victim, right? So it doesn't serve the women to say, well... Okay, so I had three of his ex-girlfriends contact me to tell me, dear God above, do not date this guy. He's a monster. I ignored the fact that he'd had five jobs in four years. I ignored the fact that he was $20,000 in credit card debt. I ignored the fact that he drank too much. I ignored the fact that he liked to go out all night. I ignored the fact, 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 because he was hot, baby. He had abs. He was hot, right? Because then it's like, okay, well, so you went for looks over quality. Sucks to be you. I'm sorry, but, you know, and I'm sorry about your kids too, but... It's not my fault. So there has to be this story, always this story with women. And the story is, he was a great guy. He was a wonderful guy. And he just changed. Just changed. He went from being a wonderful, warm-hearted guy. Just changed. That's, I mean, of course, of course, of course, because you're going to get white knights, you're going to get money. I mean... Would you tell the truth if it meant you had to go live in your car? <laughs> a lot of people wouldn't, right? We know that because they don't. So also with, with women who marry the wrong guy or have children with the wrong guy, they don't want to examine their whole social circle, right? They don't want to look at their whole social circle and say, well, that's weird. Why didn't anyone notice that this guy was kind of like a bad guy? Why didn't anyone seem to notice that this guy was kind of like a monster? Why are the people around me unable? 
Because either they saw he was a monster but didn't talk me out of it, or they, they, they can't even see he's a monster. Well, why could you not see that someone's a monster? Why could you not see that someone's irresponsible or dastardly or a man whore or something like that? Well, because you're dysfunctional yourself, right? You don't want to... Like the one pickpocket doesn't necessarily want to warn people about pickpockets. I mean, I would be a pretty cunning con and all that. So, so yeah, women um, make the wrong decisions sometimes. And then what do they do? What do they do? Well, in the past, you used to just have to stay married, right? So you'd just be miserable, but at least you'd be provided for. And they'd serve as a warning to other women. Don't, don't just go for looks, right? It's a big warning in life, which we used to have. We don't have anymore. Just don't go for looks, right? And now, of course, they can run to the state. But the only way they can run to the state is that they have to disavow agency, right? Because they'll say, oh, women, got to give them responsibility and agency. Okay, well, then you're responsible for who you make a baby with. Because if you're not responsible for who you make a baby with, what the hell are you responsible? You might as well just take a crap on a subway seat and call it modern art. Which has probably happened somewhere <laughs> sometime. But So, of course, women have to play the victim. While at the same time, they drone on and on and on about empowerment. Of course. Like the way that the left drones on and on about racism. And then, oh, yeah, okay, well, this guy did have blackface and a KKK outfit on his page when he was 25 in medical school. But, you know, he said sorry. So, yeah, all right, let us, uh, yeah, you can. Because you, you have a state, you, women will get the vote, women get the vote, you get the welfare state, and then um, immigrants come and all that kind of stuff, right? My goodness. All right, um, Scarlock, thank you. That's a very kind support. He says, hey, Stefan, I follow a guy named Peter Zihan, Z-E-I-H-A-N, a geopolitics analyst. He says 15% of Russians have TB. 20% of those with TB have AIDS. And 140 million Russians consume 20% of the world's heroin. How do we deal with a nuclear power that is on the verge of finally dying as a people, literally dying as a people? Whew, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew that there was alcoholism and depression and, and so on, but I didn't know about all this other stuff, assuming that it's legit, and I'm sure that it is. Yeah. I have this um I have this great fear. And this this ties into this, so I hope that this will help. And if you just want to put your super chats on hold, this is gonna take a minute or two. So I don't know if you guys have it out there. So I have a couple of fears. One fear is that culture is downstream from race. Okay, that's the whole other thing. But my fear So in the eighties and nineties Alexander Solzhenitsyn came to the West and he said, you guys are in big trouble. You don't see it. You don't know it. You guys are in big trouble. It's the Yuri Bezmenov situation where, the, you know, it takes a long time for the corruption to manifest in cultural suicide. But by the time it does, is it reversible? Well, I don't know. We're pushing back against it. I guess we'll find out. But here's my big fear. My big fear. Maybe it's my biggest fear. My biggest fear, I'm sorry, I'm not the new camera. My biggest fear is that uh, we're already dead. Dead West walking. When did we die? Probably about 100 years ago. Probably about 100 years ago. We expired. Once we got central banking, once government controlled education, once we had the First World War, we were dead. It was all over. 
the, the brief experiment of Western freedoms, 100, 150 years. We got wealthy, powers moved in, controlled us, exploited us, sold us out, and we expired. But you know, like the car runs out of gas, it's rolling downhill, can take a while to stop, but it's got no motive power anymore. Even an airplane jetting up runs out of fuel, it'll still go up for a little bit, still got momentum. And then, and then the great fall begins. That is my fear. That as a philosopher, as a thinker, as a passionate advocate for reason, philosophy, Western values, I'm not even like one of those surgeons, you know, this cliche in medical dramas. The surgeon's operating on a friend, someone he cares about. And the friend flatlines. And the surgeon is like, I'm not calling it. And he keeps massaging the heart and he keeps putting the paddles. And everyone's looking at him like, dude, he's gone. And he keeps trying and he keeps trying. Guy's dead. And finally, another doctor or nurse puts his hand on the wrist of the doctor who's trying to resuscitate his friend and says, I'm calling it. And then the emotion hits the surgeon. Couldn't save his friend. He's dead. Now, I may be doing that not on a body newly cooling, but on a desiccated, cobwebby corpse more than a century old. I mean, look at the data. They can, there was no IQ test in the 19th century, but they did a lot of reaction timing tests, and reaction times are associated with IQ. And the IQ drop between the 19th century and now is huge. You give some savage a piece of machinery, it could be a car, it could be a water pump, it could be anything, right? It's going to run for a while. Savage doesn't have any clue how it works. Not a goddamn clue how it works. It'll run for a while. You know, even if you give him extra gas, he can drive the car. It doesn't know how to maintain it. won't change the oil, won't change the carburetor filters, won't... doesn't know what's going on. It's a magic machine that moves around with invisible horses pulling it, right? Some water pump... You don't change the oil, you don't maintain it, you don't replace the parts, you don't get it serviced. It's going to seize. I remember talking to one guy at a car dealership who said, uh, yeah, they leased out a car to some guy. He never changed the oil and basically the engine box just fused into one big thing that replaced the whole engine. So we had this great society set up. Very small government. A government that was like 3% the size of the current government. Infinite opportunities, freedom, liberty, free speech. And we're losing it. We're taking in water. We're in big trouble. And maybe the gen pop is just not smart enough to maintain the machinery of freedom that we inherited. It's just going to continue. It's a magic Goose that keeps laying golden eggs even if you take a chainsaw to open it up and get them out ahead of time. Dead West walking. 
dead west walking. It's like this, this great movie with Nicole Kidman called The Others. Sorry, spoilers if you haven't seen it. It's an old movie. It's a great movie. If that doesn't give you chills, man, check your pulse. I mean, basically, it's about a house where there's this family living there, and they think that there's ghosts in the house. Turns out at the end of the movie that they're the ghosts, and the people that they think are ghosts are real people who are alive. It's a a chilling movie, right? You know, like the Sixth Sense thing, right? You think you're alive, but you're not. You think you're alive, but you're not. Dead cat bounce, right? Or the hair that keeps growing after somebody dies, or the nails, or whatever, right? But we have... We have merely the illusion of life. We have merely the illusion of freedom. Everything is rotted away. But the final cave-in has not happened as yet. But it can't be fixed. Can't be fixed because... What we had is dead. And it died a long time ago. And it died... I mean, I look back at when, when did Canada start this massive multicultural experiment? 1973. When did America start this massive multicultural experiment? 1965. 1973, I was seven years old. 1965, I was still a gleam in my daddy's eye. <laughs> right? It was minus one. It's a long time ago. Before any of us, just about any of us, could do anything about it. So maybe the internet just gives us front row seats to the end times of the West. Maybe it's irreversible. It's a very frightening thought. Because if you're wrong, it's really depressing and it might sap your energy to fix things. But if you're right, if I'm right, in this hypo, I don't know which way it goes. I'm still mulling it over. But if I'm right, then I'm a fool for fighting it and I should just hunker down and prepare for the worst, right? There's no reason you can't do both, but where you put your energies is important. So I don't know. Jury's out. The jury's out. There's evidence that we're in too steep a dive to pull up. I mean, even though we've got a thousand people watching this, there'll be tens or hundreds of thousands of people watching this later. Even though I can get up and give a great speech at the United, sorry, at the uh, European Union Parliament. Even though I probably have north of a million subscribers, even though, even though. Are we alive? Are we savable? Or are we people trying to flap their arms because they slipped off a cliff? They're pretending to fly. But they can't. <sighs> Gandalf the Gay. Would Europe be better off or worse if Germany won World War II? <laughs> well, there's lots of theories around that. Lots of theories. I mean, I, I get told six million times a day, watch the greatest story never told. I think I watched the first two or three minutes and nothing happened. Like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be Mr. Idea Hamster, but I, just, I could not. 
I could not get into it. So the cost, here's the great, here's the great cost of winning World War II. And this is something I was not taught growing up. So when I was taught growing up, it's like, oh, the Allies won World War II. And the Allies were mostly America and, and a little bit France and a lot of England and Canada and Australia and right? the, the Commonwealth. But the reality is, of course, that the vast majority, the significant majority of German forces were defeated by the Soviets. That without partnership with the Soviet Union, it would have been a stalemate. They would not have been able to do D-Day because... The vast bulk of German forces were bled off in the march to Moscow, to Stalingrad, and so on, right? And it's brutal winters that tear down anyone who invades Russia who hasn't read their Napoleon. But um, so they had to, the West had to ally with Uncle Joe, as he would call it. They had to ally with the Soviet Union. Now, allying with the Soviet Union meant that you could not have any particularly strong moral condemnation of communism, because you were allies with communists who were helping you defeat the National Socialists. In other words, you were allying with the International Socialists to defeat the National Socialists. So what does it do to your moral clarity, to your moral center, to your moral capacity to condemn if you rely on communism to defeat National Socialism? Well, you have to say that National Socialism is an almost infinitely greater evil than Communism. Because otherwise, why would you, right? Why would you ally with Communism to defeat National Socialism if they were both equally evil? Right? So, I mean, I, please, please check out my documentary on Poland. You can get it at um, fdrurl.com slash Poland, fdrurl dot com slash Poland, free domain radio URL, fdrurl.com slash Poland. Please check it out. It's a great documentary. And of course, England went to war in 1939 to save Poland from totalitarianism. And what happened at the end of the Second World War was Poland was taken over by totalitarianism, right? So zero effing point as far as that goes. And in many ways, the totalitarianism of the Soviets was eh, equally brutal, more brutal. It's hard to say. I mean, it was brutal what happened to Poland either way. But you can't say that communism is as evil as National Socialism. Because if they're both equally evil, then what you do if you have that moral clarity is you let them fight it out in the Eastern Front. And then what do you do? Now, this is absent the Holocaust, absent the Jewish question, so that's a whole other complication. But I'm just talking about what you would do from a a cold-eyed Anglo-Saxon clarity perspective is you would say, let them fight it out in the East. Let them let these two totalitarian systems destroy each other in the East. And then let them collapse of their own economic contradictions. And that's what happened with Russia. Nobody invaded Russia after Hitler, right? Nobody, the NATO didn't go and invade Russia. What they did was they just let it collapse. Well, why couldn't that have happened with Nazi Germany? Ah, oh, well, the Holocaust is... Yes, of course, but there was also mass murdering going on in Russia, which people were fine with. Well, not fine with, but not to the point where you intervene militarily, right? So you corrupt your own moral center completely by allying with the communists to defeat the Nazis. Because then 
a lot of people set up shop as communists in the West, particularly after the war, right? A lot of intellectuals came over and started the whole corruption of the West stuff. Not to mention that this was in the 20s and particularly in the 30s, and you can check out my presentation on the truth about McCarthyism for more on this. But the, the communists were riddled throughout the State Department. It's one of the reasons why the Eastern Bloc fell into Soviet hands. It's a central reason as to why Chairman Mao took over in China, ended up slaughtering, what was it, 80 million? I can't remember. It's like massive, unholy number of people slaughtered in China. But what can you say to the communists infiltrating your system when you've just spent years saying that the communists are our pals in fighting the Nazis and Uncle Joe's a great guy and then you've got the New York Times and covering up the crimes, and right? What do you do? We still don't have any clarity about communism. When I was on the debating society, when I was in the debating society, I was actually vice president of the debating society, when I was in the debating society at Glendon College of York University, traveling all across Canada doing debating, my very first year, I came in sixth in all of Canada. Not too bad, first round, first try. But anyway... I would meet people, they'd have a little pin of Karl Marx. A little pin of Karl Marx. Nobody cared. I cared. <laughs> but nobody cared. How do you fight communism when you've praised it as a worthwhile ally in the, ally in the fight against evil? You can't. So that was the price of allying with communism. It was the corruption of the West and an opening up of a massive gaping wound of hypocrisy which communists flowed through and ended up academically, sometimes financially, and certainly culturally dominating the West. It's a pretty high price to pay, my friends. Now, Germany would have collapsed on its own. Why? Because it's socialist. I know, blah, blah, blah. People say, well, it wasn't as bad as communism. I don't know. I mean, I did a podcast which you can check out about the totalitarian nature of the German economy in the 1930s. And I mean, come on. National socialism, you look at the entire platform, it's socialist. Free health care, free unemployment insurance, old age pensions. Remember, come on. Come on. So Germany, because it was a warfare welfare state, would have collapsed. And what would have emerged? I don't know. But most likely, because we wouldn't have compromised in the West with the hellish doctrine of communism, we would have been able to guide them to a more free market solution. And it seems unlikely that Eastern Europe would have ended up being enslaved for 40 years. So, I don't know. It's a tough call. It's a tough call. But it's a very interesting question. Thank you. All right. Alex Haluk says, Hey, Steph, do you support the legalization of all drugs? It seems to be the only pro-freedom approach. Also, how can philosophy explain the impressions of one's oneness with the universe that psychedelic drugs can induce in people? Okay, so take your second question first. Uh, philosophy can't explain the emotional content of particular drugs. Um, Freud, who I'm not a huge fan of these days, but Freud had this kind of argument of this idea that this oceanic feeling of oneness that we had when we were merged with our mother's arms as infants can be re-stimulated with 
love bombs or you know the cults use or or women or men can use this with sexuality or whatever it is and uh, drugs can also right uh, give you this feeling of oneness this lack of ego boundaries and and merging and so on fusion it's called in more dysfunctional relationships so yeah that can be explained biochemically um i don't think it's philosophy's job to explain that because philosophy can't explain why particular receptors deal with particular drugs in particular ways do i support the legalization of all drugs of course of course because growing drugs taking drugs enjoying drugs is not a violation of the non-aggression principle you're not initiating force to do it it's very simple i mean people complicate this stuff a lot it's all very simple does it initiate the use of force against anyone no so it should be legal the problem with legalizing drugs at the moment <laughs> i don't think it's an accident that three things are happening at the same time let's say in canada and other places too but number one multiculturalism and endless diversity and mass third world immigration is going on number two there's a push to get rid of people's guns and number three there's a legalization of marijuana stone population is not that hard to control <laughs> right not just not that hard to control so yeah these things are all happening at the same time and it's not not any kind of accident not any kind of issue as far as that goes so yeah they should be legalized now another problem of course with legalizing drugs at the moment is is twofold fundamental well, I guess threefold one is that a guy on drugs can go on welfare so that you know what limits people's consumption of drugs is the fact that they have to earn a living they have to show up to work they have to right there's nothing worse than an addict addict becoming rich and famous right but um and i've never i've never tried drugs not even marijuana so i mean but well i i've never tried hard drugs it's a it's a medium roast <laughs> so yeah so the problem is that the people go on the welfare state and um people who they can end up if they get mentally screwed up by drugs they can go on disability so the problem is if you legalize drugs and then you socialize the costs of taking those drugs then that's not really very fair it's like this whole argument that women say with my body my choice well first of all my spleen doesn't get out and sing songs loudly at three o'clock in the morning like kids do so it's not really your body because it's going to detach and grow right i mean if it's if it's your body then technically you're your mother's body <laughs> that works for you i don't know what to say but um yeah women say my body my choice but if women are irresponsible with their sexuality you know who gets to pay men and particularly white men in western countries because we are the majority taxpayers of uh western countries. And so it's one thing to say my body my choice and it's another thing to say oh well now you have to be forced to pay for my birth control and you have to be forced to pay for my abortion and you have to be forced to pay if I don't have an abortion for my child's healthcare and his education and housing and food stamps and 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 right so this is the problem. The problem It's like if you legalize abortion right now, sorry, if you make abortion illegal, and this is why this whole thing is going on with this Virginia governor, right? And all this kind of stuff because people are terrified with Ruth Bader Ginsburg being AWOL for weeks now that they're concerned that uh, Trump's going to appoint a more conservative Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned, and Roe v. Wade was a complete lie to begin with. Because the woman uh, she died I think a year or two ago, the woman was uh, she felt she'd been tricked into supporting abortion and she hated the fact that she was associated with abortion. uh and 
she had a very seedy and, and nasty life when she was young. I think got born again and, and really opposed everything to do with abortion. And uh, yeah, just lied to and tricked, as, as so many vulnerable people often are, by the powers that be. But if you make abortion illegal right now, as long as there's a welfare state, well, you're going to get a massive flourishing of often low IQ kids, right? Single moms have IQ significantly lower than the general population. So. so yeah, I'm for legalization, but legalization without responsibility, where you pay for the socialized costs of people's mess. <sighs> Crazy. All right, so let's see here. Uh, Road Warrior 2 says, do you know Atlantic Canada is still over 90% white? Your thoughts? <laughs> well, not for long. See, this is the thing. The diversity is a huge issue for so many reasons. But one of the biggest ones is that uh, the, the, the diversity is not evenly spread out across the country. So where do people who come from, from India or Sri Lanka or Somalia, where do they uh, where do they go? They go to the cities and they go to their own ethnic enclave. It's spread out across the country. It's not diversity. It's balkanization. We know this. It's all very, very clear. So Atlantic Canada, well, this is the great question of separation of countries, which we can talk about another time. But uh, it seems, uh, seems likely that it's going to happen. And then there'll be lots of walls, right? Because here's the thing. Let's say people say, oh, well, California should have its own. It should be its own country now. It should be its own country because the reconquista is going on and La Raza is fulfilling what some of its members want, which is to take over California back into the Hispanic or into the Mexican landscape, which they feel was stolen from them, and they're going to take it back and all that. Say, oh, okay, well, California, uh, you know, we're going to separate. California is now its own country, right? But we know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> Not complicated for those who know anything about race and IQ. We know it's going to happen. The Hispanics have an IQ in the high 80s. Can't sustain a free society. Can't sustain a free market. Can't sustain free speech. Can't sustain freedom of religion. Can't sustain any of these things. Because statistically, no country with an IQ of 90 or below gets to keep any freedom. So what's going to happen? Well, massive socialization, massive welfare state, Venezuela 2.0, and then California... Because it borrows and prints money like crazy, it's going to stimulate a baby boom among the Hispanics, and then they're going to run out of food and money and, and you name it. And then where are they going to go? Hey, where are the white people at? They've got stuff. Swarm, swarm, swarm. And it's very clear. It's not, it's not complicated. It's not that hard to figure out. It's not easy to solve. Don't get me wrong. But this idea that, well, we'll just segregate. It's like, yeah, well. It's not, not going to work. I mean, at least not going to work peacefully because the lower IQ groups are going to run out of food. And then what's going to happen? Well, they're not just going to sit there and starve. They're going to find, find where the people with money are. And that's going to be the white people and the East Asians. George Soros, how much of the EU migrant crisis can we blame directly on him personally? Now, I see, if you want to look at who to blame for the migrant crisis, it's uh, Hillary and Obama. Very clear. Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama. Because they're the ones who blew up Libya. Now, Libya, and, and Gaddafi said directly to the world, he said, if you get rid of me, I mean, he knew, right? He knew that they were aiming for him, they were gunning for him. He said, if you get rid of me, nothing's going to stop the blacks in the rest of Africa from swarming across the Mediterranean into Europe. They knew this. They knew this. But they got rid of him anyway, or you, you could say despite or perhaps because, I don't know what goes on in the minds of these horribly evil people, but Libya was keeping the Africans from reaching Europe. 
because he had a, as I said in my EU speech, a totalitarian but functional society. You could not pass through Libya when Gaddafi was in charge to get to Europe. And they destroyed him. And they knew that that was going to be the consequence. Because the hard left, they desperately need freedom to fail. Because they're all in with coercion. Like they're all down with coercion, control. They desperately need freedom to fail. So these incredible job numbers came out in January in America. The left wasn't that happy. Of course not. Like if you're waiting for some hated grandmother to die so that you can get her million dollars, and then she, I'm better, <laughs> right? It's like that scene in Monty Python. I feel happy. I've uh, Bring out your dead. Yeah, it's a Mike Bat song too. Anyway, but um, that's the way it rolls. You know, they got rid of Libya. Uh, they got rid of Libya. So that opened up the floodgates, and everyone could come in. So George Soros, I don't know. I mean, it's not helping. Don't get me wrong, but he didn't open up Libya. All right, Lawrence Fentuli. Fentuli. That it says, what do you think the minimum IQ would be needed to have a stateless society to function based on the minimum IQ needed for a democracy to function is at least 90? <sighs> well, higher than we have. <laughs> higher than we have, for sure. It's uh, a good question. I mean, you don't need that many people in society because... There's so much automation. The fact that smart people don't have as many kids is not a huge issue. First of all, it's only an issue because of the welfare state, right? So the way it would work in a free society, I tweeted about this too. In a free society, you get a baby boom, which means a huge number of houses get built. And then what happens is there's a baby bust, right? So fewer people have kids. And then what should happen is the price of real estate should drop enormously because there's so many houses for the baby boomers. So the baby boomers retire. And then there's a huge glut of houses on sale, and therefore the housing price should go down enormously, which means people have more money to have babies, to raise babies again, right? So it's supposed to balance out, you know, like the whole CO2 plant food cycle thing, right? It's supposed to balance out, and it would if the free market were allowed to operate. But the financial system that we have, this predatory debt-based fiat currency bullshit system that we have, well, it can't sustain a loss in real estate values. It just can't. Because one of the ways in which we have the illusion of increased wealth is the value of a house goes up. And why does the value of a house go up? Well, because there's great demand for the houses. But why, when the boomers are starting to retire and get out of their big houses, there should be, of course, a huge drop in the value of real estate. But then the boomers are going to get really mad because they're going to try and sell their house and they hope to get a million dollars for it. Maybe they're going to get $400,000 for it. They get really mad. Boomer anger is... I don't have to reckon with it as... A philosopher, but politicians have to reckon with it because they're a, a strangely childish and resentful voting block, right? So, yeah, they don't want to see the value of those real estate go down, right? And also, um, so many uh, of the mortgage-backed securities have been bundled into larger financial instruments and sold all over the world, as happened in the lead-up to the 0708 crisis, which was a crisis of multiculturalism and a lack of willingness to talk about race and IQ because there was this mandate from the 90s, really, going onwards 
this mandate to get blacks and Hispanics into more home ownership because it was considered racist that they didn't have the same home ownership. Although when you controlled for income and criminal history and credit score, they find the banks don't care. Banks just want to make money. They don't care if you're green. And so there was this huge push to get blacks and Hispanics into housing. And then the housing variable rates went up and they couldn't afford it. And they almost took down the entire world's economic system, right? So can't have a loss in the value of real estate. So what do you do? Well, you import people, right? You got, what, 50 million abortions since Roe v. Wade, so you're missing a whole bunch of people, right? So what do you do? You import people. So you import people, and then you put them in relatively poor housing, and that drives the people out to the next tier of housing, which drives the people out to the next tier of housing, and it ends up having an effect on the price of mansions. So, Yeah. This is uh, our system is driven by a lot of complex things more than just George Soros's money. So minimum IQ, I don't know. I, I don't think IQ is foundationally the issue. The issue is philosophy. You you can like I'd rather be, I'd rather have an IQ of ninety five and sound philosophical principles than an IQ of one hundred and forty and postmodernism. You have a much happier life with an IQ of ninety or ninety five with sound philosophical principles than you ever will. Being a very smart and very mentally screwed up human being. Philosophy matters more than IQ when it comes to human happiness. In fact, high or low IQ is not fundamentally related to human happiness, statistically. You can be happy with a low IQ, you can be happy with a high IQ. Now, I think what we have right now is a system wherein people with lower IQs have a terrible time because they're constantly told, well, the only reason that you're not doing well is because those evil capitalist white bastards are exploiting you and stealing from you and stole from your ancestors and da right? Failed government policies, whether it's the communist policies in South Africa or the socialist policies in the West, failed economic policies need a scapegoat. And the scapegoat is white people. It's really sad. It's dangerous as hell. It's really sad. And so... What happens? Well, people aren't going to make much money if they have an IQ of 90. They can have great lives. And, and haven't we all envied them at one time or another? The ignorance is bliss scenario, right? So people with low IQs can have great lives. But we're taking that from them by telling them that they should be making the same as someone with an IQ of 140. And the only reason they, that they're not is because evil white racists are exploiting them and stole from their ancestors. So rather than them accepting their lot in life, which everyone has to do, everyone has to do it. It's like that old cartoon that's hanging in Sting's house from way back in the day where there was, I think it was the New Yorker, one guy at a bar is talking to another guy at a bar and says, how's your life doing? The other guy says, you know, it's okay. My life is okay, but it's still not Sting's life. You know, because, you know, a lean guy and good looking guy and, you know, touring all over the world. Although I believe him basically to be a commie slash socialist, socialist agitprop forever, right? Song Russians. I hope the Russians love their children too. Hey, let's sing more about the victims of Pinochet. Oh, he's just a lefty cuck. But anyway... So, yeah, you can, you can have a fine life, a great life. We all have to accept these limitations. You know, I like to sing. I'm no great singer. 
just the way things are. Now, if somebody said, if somebody said, and I genuinely believe that I was a great singer, but the only reason that I was not a successful singer is because all the Jews are keeping me out, like I would, I would go crazy. It would, it would make me miserable, angry, frustrated, resentful. No, <laughs> the world is the world is pretty fair when you understand it through the lens of intelligence. It's pretty fair. In fact, it's very fair. Normalized by IQ, almost all the differences that we ascribe to racism or sexism, we just all fall away. You're normalized by IQ, and the world makes sense. It's like, you know, looking at the solar system. You normalize by the sun being at the center, everything makes sense. You normalize by the earth being at the center, things are ridiculously complex, and you're wrong, fundamentally. So it bothers me. All the lies that are told, the weaponization of low intelligence and all the lies that are told to less intelligent people about the only reason they're not doing well is evil white bigots won't let them or evil whatever bigots won't let them. That's, um, that's wrong. It strips, strips happiness from hundreds of millions of people around the world. You know, you, you can look at the, the comments below my South Africa videos. I mean, good Lord. Oh, we're going to take back the land that the evil whites stole from our ancestors like... Trust me, the Boers who've been in South Africa longer than whites have been in America, the Boers did not come to South Africa and find wonderfully complex farms with incredibly modern technology, massive complex irrigation, and just stole them. There was the Khoi and the Sand people who were there originally who were wiped out by the blacks. The land was mostly empty. It was bought a lot of times. Yeah, sometimes there were fights about it. But they didn't wipe out the domestic population like the blacks did. So because they don't know the history and they think, well, we should be the same as Europe. And the only reason we're not the same as Europe or Canada or Australia is because the evil whites stole all these wonderful resources. Yeah, because Lord knows that the Khoi and the Sand people had wonderful use for palladium and copper <laughs> half a mile below the South African landscape. Yeah, absolutely. So rather than having good, enjoyable lives, they're, 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 they're full of rage and frustration and resentment and anger and violence. It's brutal. It is a, and Because the, the left drive all of this stuff, right? And then the left claim, well, it's terrible when you exploit people. It's like, you're exploiting people. Exploiting low IQ people, low IQ groups to weaponize them against your enemies. That's, not only is it dangerous, not only does it result in untold levels of violence, not only may it result in social collapse, but it robs happiness and contentment from people by the hundreds of millions. It's very, very cruel. In the same way that feminism robs our capacity to love each other. I mean, it's horrible. All right. Ah, you guys are too much fun. All right. Calorette. These, uh, these glasses, so these are, you don't really care, but anyway, just so you know, these are my original glasses from like 10 years ago. They distort my eyes the least, and they're pretty good. I can still read, but occasionally, right. Poland and Hungary survived 50 years of communism. The West could have survived, but for mass immigration. Average IQ cycles up and down organically throughout history. A population can have a renaissance if not first replaced. Well, okay, let's, uh, let's talk about this. Let me just, I'm sorry, just before I do, let me just scroll back and make sure I got everyone. Because, uh, yeah, some people call me like really, really angry. Like, they're angry that I missed a super chat. And I'm not trying to. (laughs) 
Do you see a big team here? No. All right, Double Dog Bear. Hey, who we talked before, right? Thank you for your support. If you hunger for God is, if you hunger for God in personal and unavoidable evidence, your best bet is to pull the thread of Bob Olson. When I was seventeen, I somehow witnessed in my mind, in greater clarity than waking life, the untimely demise of my grandmother. No drugs involved. Bob Olson. Okay, I'll have a look into Bob Olson. All right, did I get anyone? Okay, yeah. So. Uh, the real question: uh, What is what is what is driving mass uh, mass migration? It's not George Soros. It's not the Kalergi plan. I mean, yeah, these things are out and, and they're factors and so on, but they're not the central factor. And it is, I think, the job of of philosophers and, and thinkers to identify root causes so we don't end up trimming the leaves of the tree of evil. Hack at the root, right? So what's the root? The root is the denial of mathematical reality, largely on the part of the boomers. And I'm not putting John Waters into this category completely, but, you know, I, you saw this when I was talking about John Waters. There's no money. There's no money for the boomers' retirement. Now, what happens? People say, oh, Steph, you should get into politics. Okay, okay, let's say I'm in politics. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the speech that I would give if I were in politics. And you'll see whether I should be in politics or not. So it's a, hey, boomers, sorry, there's no money in your retirement funds. In fact, not only is there no money in your retirement funds, there's nothing but debt. Treasury notes, IOUs, bonds. There's nothing but dusty debt instruments in your retirement funds. There's no money. Now, whose fault is that? Well, it's not the fault of the young, because they weren't even born when all of this stuff was going down. You could say, well, but a lot of the, like the 1965 Immigration Act and the Welfare State and so on, they were voted on by the greatest generation, right? The World War II generation. It's like, okay, but it's easier to stop something when it's small than when it's big, right? It's easier to tame a wolf pup than it is <laughs> to take down an adult grown wolf, right? So it was easier to stop Back in the day, it was easy to stop in the 60s and 70s when the boomers came of age from a voting standpoint. It was easier to stop then than it is now. And they refused to stop it. And listen, I say this having talked to boomers my whole life. My professors were boomers, my elders, my teachers, my like parents, friends, friends' parents and all that. All boomers. All boomers. I've talked to them for decades about this. And they steadfastly do this. La, 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 la. Hey, there's your gift for the day. So, it's not the fault of the young, right? I mean, the boomers, like, <laughs> if you're a boomer, did you know about the national debt? It's a kind of important question, right? I mean, did you know about the national debt? Because if you knew about the national debt, and you didn't do anything about it, and you didn't complain about it, and you didn't vote for people who promised to balance the national debt, and you didn't vote for people who said, listen, we've got to cut way back on our spending because we're leaving an unfair obligation to our children. It's clearly the boomers' fault more than it is the millennials or Gen X. Clearly. So you say, okay, well, there's no money in your retirement funds. So what should we do? Now, your real estate has been artificially inflated, so maybe you can sell that. Maybe you can move in with your kids. 
Maybe you can double up. Maybe you'll have to keep working a little bit longer. Maybe you've got some savings. Maybe you bought some Bitcoin. I don't know. But there's no money. Now, is it fair to pillage the futures of the young because you failed to restrain the government? Because why did the boomers say you have to obey the government? You see, because you get a voice, you get a say. So if you're going to propagandize the young that democracy legitimizes the government because you have a say, you have a choice, guess what, boomers? You're responsible for what you did for the 40 years of your voting lives. Or more. You are responsible. Now, if you're going to say, well, well, I guess we didn't really have any control over the government, right? Okay, well... And you lied to everyone for 40 years. Oh, you've got to obey the government because you democracy, you've got a voice, and uh, the government reflects the will of the people, and that's why it's legitimate, uh, right? So clearly, it's not fair to pillage the young for the political stupidity, blindness, greed, and selfishness of the boomers. And that's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. It's not, not the fault of the kids that you guys voted in a bunch of slick-tongued, sophist assholes from the left and the right who made all the sweet, sugary, saccharine promises in the known universe and never taxed you enough to pay for everything that you wanted. It's not the fault of the kids that you guys voted stupidly and greedily. Because the math was clear. Math was clear. <laughs> I've said this before. I remember being in a grade 8 history class. And there was some boomer teacher there blathering on about how, well, remember, you, you kids will get your pensions when you get old. And we, I remember, I remember so clearly this ripple of laughter going around the room. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Boomer math. Come on. Nobody believed it. Nobody believes it now. So why is there a huge migration crisis? Because the boomers won't listen to the truth, won't listen to the facts. And the boomers will vote out anyone who tells them the truth. The boomers, as a whole, are in steadfast denial of the iron laws of mathematics. And they refuse to take any moral responsibility for having not listened to libertarians, to minarchists, to objectivists, to economists, to anyone. There is a consequence to the steadfast opposition to reality. It's bad for you. It's called insanity in general. Resist! Resist reality. That's all they're doing, right? So I would say to the boomers, there's no money. And you know what's not an option? More debt. You know what's not an option? Stealing from the young. Why? Because it's not their fault that you all voted for big government programs for the warfare welfare state and refused to pay the taxes to cover it. You've known about the national debt Forever. The national debt has been talked about from the 1960s onwards. Everybody knows about the national debt. And if you don't know about the national debt, then you were voting, then you weren't taking your responsibilities as a citizen, even remotely seriously, to the point where what were you voting on? What were you voting on if you didn't know the basic fiscal reality of your entire society? So it's not. A moral solution to tax the young, to pay for your retirement. You are the richest generation in human history. You refused 
to shrink the government, you refused to adequately fund your own pensions. And people say, well, but they took the money from me. And you trusted the government. Now, you guys grew up in the 1960s. And you know what the 1960s, particularly in America, but other places as well said, don't trust the government. So you can't claim that you never heard the idea that you shouldn't trust the government. That was the entire point of the countercultural revolution. Well, they meant don't trust the free market government. They love the socialist totalitarian states. So it's okay. When you're going to sit down, put your grizzled, knobby, spotty, white-haired foreheads together, and let's reason this thing through. Let's reason this thing through. What's going to happen? What's the just and fair solution to the fact that you handed your money over to the state? You knew that the state didn't keep it. You didn't do anything about it. And you shouted down as deeply immoral anyone who tried to tell you the truth. Who should be responsible for that? Guess what, boomers? It's called a mirror, okay? It's called a mirror. You are responsible. You are responsible for the fact that there's no money in your retirement plans. Now, I'm not quite a boomer. I'm a year or two off. But look, at least cut me some slack insofar as I was arguing and trying to bring truth to the boomers for decades when they just, they don't listen. They don't want to listen. They They simply refuse to listen and they viciously attack you for telling them the truth which they know. So who should pay the consequences of the avoidance of reality? Who should pay for it? Of course the boomers should pay for it. I'd say, look, there's no money. Now, here's where you have to rely on friends and family. So you can, you, hey, listen, you can go to your kids and say, you know, daddy needs a retirement home in Florida and maybe they'll fund you. But they already have a national debt, which you gave to them. And you bought all the newspapers and sat there in your Baca lounger chairs thumbing through all those newspapers, paying for all those reporters who said anyone who talks about shrinking the size and power of the state is an evil, uncaring person who wants to eat poor people for brunch. You you kept all those guys in money. You kept all of those guys going. Right? So whose fault is it? It's not the fault of the young. It's your fault. So what are you going to do? You're going to continue to prey on the young? It's vile. It's not their fault. Who should pay for your blindness, your selfishness, your greed, your stupidity, and your petulant rage anytime anyone bought the vaguest shred of reality to your grizzled, addled, confused brains? Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Let us sit down and reason together. But there's a few things off the table, my friends. Demanding the young pay for it? Not not an option. That's vampiric. It's not their fault. It's your fault. So let's sit down and figure out what's going to happen. You got big old houses. Maybe you can sell those to the young, but we're not going to prop up the price. Sell those to the young and live off that. Bunch of things, but there's no money. So stop stealing from the young. So I would go on along those lines. Now, how long, how would, how well would I do as a politician? Well, I'm not going to lie, right? How well would I do as a politician? I think we all know. <laughs> so, all right, a couple more. Nice to see. Look at that. It's so beautiful, man. Thousands of people interested in philosophy on a lovely Sunday afternoon. Should we do a regular thing? I don't know. Let's see here. 
let's see here. Uh, RM, your thoughts on the assertion from Vox Day. The free speech was always a fake principle and the Enlightenment was not merely a fake philosophy. It was a complete lie designed to undermine Christian society. I have not read that argument from Vox Day, uh, but I know he's got some criticisms of Jewish IQ. He's got some criticisms of Jordan Peterson. I'm, I've been, I hate to say, oh, I've been really, really uh, busy and blah, 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 blah. Only so many hours in the day. Uh, somebody says, mistake was made for live. Uh, thank you for your support. What does your family think of your work? They love it. Angelo, uh-oh, <laughs> Ngoyen. Ngoyen? I looked this up once because I had to talk about it. I'm, I'm so sorry to mispronounce it. It's actually, uh, <laughs> it's pretty terrible, but it's very funny. I think it's a channel which says, you know, here's how to pronounce this word. But they just make up pronunciations, and it's actually kind of funny. The one from Ngoyen is pretty good. I think it was like Beyonce, but donk donk but donk donk Anyway, so Angelo says, will you accept people like me, ethnically mixed, culturally UPB libertarian, as an ally? Don't worry, I will still fight for the good, the good fight about, UP, uh, about IQ, even if you don't answer it. Love, brother, I'll keep the faith with you. Yes, listen, <laughs> I, I, have, I have nothing against... Low IQ individuals, low IQ groups, any more than I have something against people who aren't flexible or aren't good at carpentry or who don't sing well. I mean, so you're a smart person. You have good values. Wonderful. You know, great. Uh, If you're not a smart person and you have good values, like you don't want to initiate the use of force, which a three-year-old can understand. So I don't think there's a particular IQ bottom where you can't understand don't use force against people to get what you want. So, yeah, listen, I think that's wonderful. Um... I love all the races. This is like so confusing to me that, that people get upset about this. I, I, I'm fighting racism every time I open my mouth. I'm fighting racism every time I open my mouth. And the only reason you would think otherwise is because you're racist against white people. I am fighting anti-white racism. And I'm also promoting the greatest happiness possible for the greatest number of people in the world. Because I believe truth serves happiness. Reason equals virtue equals happiness. If you don't have rational viewpoints... You can't be virtuous. If you can't be virtuous, you can't be happy. And virtue is not something you need an IQ of 140 to practice. In fact, it seems to get in the way quite a bit if you look at the French intellectuals of the 1960s and 1970s who signed petitions to legalize pedophilia. <laughs> but anyway, so no, I, I'm, I want the races to get along. There's stuff I love from the East Asian community. There's stuff I love from the black community. There's stuff I love from the Hispanic community. stuff I love from the white community. So we can all get along a lot better than we do, but we have to drop the narrative that all the problems of lower IQ groups come from endless white evil bigotry and racism. Come on. Come on. Everybody knows that is a noxious and toxic narrative designed to foment race wars. Of course, hostility, anger, rage between the races is being fomented by the denial of IQ differences between races. So, if, if I had the perspective, let's say I'm a Japanese guy, right? And I have the perspective that the only reason that blacks are the majority of NBA players is because the people who run the NBA are vicious anti-Japanese racists, right? Well, um, is that going to serve the happiness in my life? Feeling that I'm in an environment entirely dominated by racists and bigots who hate me? Let's say I'm in the basketball field or the world or whatever. Oh, I want to play basketball. 
well, I'm going to get really angry, really frustrated, and I'm going to hate the people who I'm told hate me. So understand, I'm going to hate the people who I'm told hate me. And this narrative that says whites hate blacks and Hispanics, they never talk about the East Asians because they make more than whites, right? Never talk about the Jews because they make even more than the East Asians. Never talk about the Hindus, which is not a race, I understand. But, you know, there's ethnic components to it. Um, uh, Hindus and, and Jewish families in America are the ones with the highest household incomes. But if you go to the blacks and Hispanics and say, the whites hate you, the whites despise you, the whites are racist against you. And that's the entire reason, the only reason why you guys don't perform economically as well as other groups as a whole. Come on. You know what that does, right? Is it makes a whole bunch of people insanely angry at white people. And that that manifests, that plays out, that comes to life and to death sometimes. And if you look at the amount of crime you can look up, uh, it's, I think it's been updated. It's called The Color of Crime. And uh, Jared Taylor, I, th- I think it, was, it comes from his organization. He's been on the show. You can look up The Color of Crime. The violence enacted against whites from blacks and Hispanics vastly outstrips the violence enacted against blacks and Hispanics by whites. Vastly, vastly outstrips it. Like if New York City was all white, like the number of shootings would go down by like 90 plus percent. The hate crimes, racial motivated hate crimes, far greater proportion against whites than from whites to other ethnicities, right? So I love the races. That's diversity. Diversity is wonderful in, in this way, right? But if you bring a lot of people together of different ethnicities and races, and then you keep pounding into the heads of certain races that those white people hate you and want you dead and, and want to, they just, we wake up every morning, we wash our face, we comb the side of our heads, and then we just sit there and plot how we can possibly make the lives of blacks and Hispanics worse. I mean, it's not, not, not what people do. <laughs> explain Denzel Washington, explain Michael Jackson. So I, I mean, I'd, I mean, I'd love to live in a world where skin color was as irrelevant as hair color. Not the world we live in. There are differences between the races. And we can either look at the facts about what those differences are. Or we can say, well, all the differences are because of evil white racism. And what does that do? Makes everybody miserable. Makes everybody angry. Makes whites scared. Makes blacks and Hispanics angry. Provokes violence. Provokes conflict. And has us all staring at each other suspiciously in a hostile manner. And it's very dangerous for white people. I mean, ask the farmers in South Africa. These murders don't come from nowhere. I mean, each farm in South Africa feeds 3,000 people. Do those 3,000 people say, wow, I'm so glad that these <laughs> whites are out there farming because, you know, we're not so good at it, our average IQ and all. But you, you could tell them this story and say, listen, whites ended up with higher IQs because they suffered enormously. And, and people who didn't plan died off in winter, and it's the result of not privilege but suffering. It's even more so for the East Asians who were in Siberia and had even more brutal winters. You'd say huge amounts of suffering produced white people and East Asian people, Jews as well. Huge suffering. Now the world can profit from this because there's lots of language and spatial reasoning skills and creativity and 
productivity and so on. So, you know, it's a good thing that those whites had 50,000 years of brutal winters because now they can come and be incredibly productive on farms. So you guys were having a relatively easy time of it here in the tropics while white people were holding their frozen children and trying to bury them in a frozen earth, right? I mean, so you, you could tell that story and you could say, listen, just let's be thankful for the productivity of whites and of East Asians and right, let's, let's be thankful for some of the wonderful things that blacks bring to the, the earth. Let's be thankful for some of the wonderful things that Hispanics bring to the earth. But instead of going to the blacks in sub-Saharan Africa and South Africa and saying, your population grew 800%, after the Second World War, because blacks are really, uh, whites are really good at farming and, and social organization and healthcare and sanitation and plumbing and sewage treatment, you name it, right? They're in steel. So you could have that story and you wouldn't have farm murders, right? You wouldn't have this incredibly insane hatred against the whites. That is, is, Growing across the world, we could appreciate the differences that we all bring to the table. But that, so that, so when people say, well, you know, are you fine? If I, great, <laughs> enjoy, wonderful. But you can't get along with people you're told just hate you and stole from you. You can't, and, and, and that's why I challenge this narrative. The way you challenge this narrative is with facts, reason, history, evidence, right? Whites were enslaved, more whites were enslaved by the Muslims than whites enslaved the blacks, right? If, 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 who, who enabled the black slave trade was blacks. Why aren't the blacks going back to Africa and saying, you know, your ancestors sold us to the white people? The white people... We, White people couldn't go in to Africa and get slaves. The average life expectancy for a white person in Africa was 11 months, if you were lucky. Nobody's running to the Muslims and saying, well, tens of millions of black slaves were taken and castrated and murdered. And, well, not murdered, castrated, although I think nine out of ten of the blacks didn't survive that primitive operation where they, you know, hacked off the twigs and berries, right? Nobody's running to the Muslims. And saying, well, this is uh, your reparations, right? So we can all get along much, much, much better. But we have to have the facts. And we have to accept our differences. On average, individually, again, you can't tell anything about any race when it comes to individuals. Men and women can get along a lot better. But as long as women think, well, men just underpay us because they hate us. <laughs> Come on. I don't know. Facts will save us. And if we're not allowed to speak facts, we can't be saved. All right. Uh, hey, Steph, could you shed a little light? This is from... Oh, okay. Blukvobl. <laughs> hey, Steph, could... you? Oh, sorry. Let me just see here. Hey, Steph, could you shed a little insight on the philosophy of cults? I've been lured into a few in search of finding truth slash ethics slash way of life, and it's all ended up horribly. Boy, that's going to bug some people. Because, you know, the old canard that I'm a cult leader, right? Because I talk about philosophy. So I, I think the the essence, I'm no expert here, but this is sort of my understanding. I think that the essence of what happens in the cult is this thing called the love bomb. And the love bomb is if you haven't had connection, if you haven't had intimacy, if you haven't had love, particularly as an infant where it's all unconscious, 
If you haven't had love, then you're just kind of struggling through life. You're short of dopamine. You're short of endorphins. You're short of the happy hormones of, of a joyful existence. And so then what happens is a cult will come along. Uh, cult leaders will come along and they will. What will they say? They will say, uh, we love you. You're a special, wonderful person. You're a great person. You know, you, you have infinite potential. You, you know, and they'll just love bomb you, right? And just here's your structure. Here's your community. Here's, you know. All you have to do is surrender to the whatever ethic is, not even ethic usually, whatever the belief system is going on, just surrender to this belief system and we'll love you. Now, the drug that they're delivering are the endorphins, right? The drug that they're delivering are the happy hormones of, of a joyful existence. And, and you're particularly hungry for them, I would assume, because you had a deprived childhood. Maybe your mother was, I mean, my mother had postpartum depression so badly she spent months in hospital. And I was actually raised by a woman who bonded with me so much she ended up naming her later child when she grew up uh, after me because we had such a great bond and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm different from other people in my family but that's uh, obviously not a big null hypothesis for all of that but I do know that my mother was in the hospital and I had a wonderful carer who really bonded with me and had a great time and I what effect that had I don't know but it gives me I think a sort of security of knowing that I'm loved without having to continually surf the crazy jagged hysteria of, of public opinion. But so I think that there's a, um, a hunger, right? And, and the hunger is to avoid the suffering of the past. It's the same thing with the boomers I was talking about earlier, right? They, they trusted the government. They ignored facts. They shouted down anyone and attacked anyone who told them the truth. And they want to avoid that suffering of the past by exploiting the young for, for money, right? Taking money from the young who weren't responsible. So if you had... A childhood or an infancy where your mother was not connected or you didn't have that love, that connection. Well, what happens? You want to avoid the grieving, right? You want to avoid the pain of that. And we'll do crazy things to avoid legitimate suffering. Legitimate suffering is not, is, is when you suffer because of genuine wrongs that were done unto you, not because you you know, you cut yourself because you're, right, you're a cutter or whatever, right? So when you don't pursue it, but there's legitimate suffering, like you legitimately did suffer as an infant, so you were lonely, you were unattended, you, were, you didn't get mirrored, you didn't, whatever, you get held enough, whatever it is, right? And so you have this loss, this, this hole in your heart the size of your heart. Now you can either go back and say, I didn't get what I needed when I needed it. And that renders me to be susceptible to, to love bombs. It renders me susceptible to crazy belief systems in return for acceptance, right? It's not acceptance. It's uh, training you, right? It's training you with endorphins to believe crazy things. So if you're trying to avoid the suffering of, of isolation, of loneliness from your early childhood or infancy, then someone who comes along and basically what they're selling you is the problem, your unhappiness doesn't come from the fact that you didn't have a strong connection with your mother. Your unhappiness comes from the fact that you don't believe that space aliens built the pyramids. That's, that's where your suffering comes from. And then you're like, whew, great. I, I don't have to criticize my mother. I just have to believe that space aliens built the pyramids and then everyone's going to hug me and it's all going to be fine. But it's not the truth. The truth is you suffer because you didn't have a bond with your mother. I think of these circumstances, in my amateur opinion, of course. It's not because you don't believe that space aliens built the pyramids or whatever, right? But people will grab onto that because then they, they get the endorphins without having to do the work of self-knowledge. 
and com- criticizing and confronting the past. So that's my particular perspective on that. Okay, this is too much fun. One or two more. Look at that. Still need thousands of people. All right. Uh, the Liberty Conservative Podcast. What would you recommend for liberty-minded podcasts to grow? How did your own show take off in the way that it has? Love what you do. You are a genuine moral and intellectual leader. Lots of love. Oh, thank you, guys. Uh, well, thank you, I guess, if there's more than one of you running this podcast. The Liberty Conservative Podcast. You can look it up. Always happy to promote the competition. Um, the most common phrase that I get from listeners goes something like this. Steph, you put into words what I've always felt or thought but could never express. Now, whether they couldn't express it because they couldn't put it into words or it was too scary to express or too many negative consequences come from expressing it, I'm not sure exactly because it varies from person to person. Dig deep and tell the truth that other people won't speak, <laughs> right? There's lots of people out there, like this guy who said, do a history of feminism. There are lots of people out there criticizing feminism, and I'll have a go at feminism from time to time for sure. But you look at the competitive landscape and individuate, dis- distinguish yourself, right? I mean, I'll talk about things that other people won't touch with a 10-foot pole. Find those things or, or dig deep within yourself and find the truths that everybody needs to hear but they can't express, and then make sure, in a sense, that you're the only place that they can get it from, and you will, you will grow. All right. All right. Loquacious primate. Ooh, good name. Oh, is this one of two? Uh, two, the property owners lack resources to stop the activity. Degrade the lake water via... Oh, is this everyone has a... Um, uh, so everyone has a, a cottage on a lake? I'm sorry if I missed the first one here. Yeah, I don't see the first one. But um, yeah, so everyone has a cottage on a lake and some guy starts polluting the lake. Well, what you do is you buy insurance. You buy insurance that says if the lake water pollution goes above a certain level, then uh, they will buy your house at the market value, or twice the market value before the pollution hit, right? So let's say your house is worth $250,000 on the lake and you buy insurance that says, okay, if if the lake water pollution goes up a certain amount, then you have to buy my house at $500,000. Now, of course, it'll be worth even less because the pollution's gone up. And that way you off, you off source, uh, you outsource the maintenance of the pollution in your lake to the company that has a direct financial incentive to make sure the lake stays clean. So they'll go and offer it. Other people will make sure, will give you discounts on your insurance if you do this, that, or the other to make sure that you don't dump sewage into the lake or whatever it is. There's tons of different ways. Um, it, it, it's called Dispute Resolution Organizations. I've got two books at freedomainradio.com forward slash free. They are free. Everyday Anarchy and Practical Anarchy goes into a lot of ways in which spontaneous social self-organization solves these problems in a way that the government never can. So I hope that helps. All right. I feel, I feel horrible stopping if there's more questions. Adam Feather says, how can certain susceptible women be weaned off their addictions to free resources and to choosing horrible, irresponsible mates? Well, if people won't listen to reason, they have to listen to consequences. That's just reality, right? If people won't listen to reason, they have to listen to consequences. So if they've made terrible decisions, let's say that they have three kids by three different guys and the kids are badly behaved because they've been badly raised. Like kids on welfare, like kids in professional households, like 2,500 words a day, different words a day. Kids in welfare households barely get 800 and they've been dumped on tablets and in front of TVs and badly raised and so on. She's in a mess. 
Is there an easy way out of that? I don't know. I don't give a shit. Like, I'm sorry to say it. I don't care. Like, the welfare state has to end. So the women say, oh, it's going to be tough. Yeah, you know what was tough? Getting fucking drafted it was tough. Being sent to D-Day was tough. Getting your head blown off. Saving Private Ryan style was tough. Years of fighting in the jungle in Vietnam was tough. Korea was tough. Second World War, First World War, Gulf War, Iraq War, Afghanistan, that's tough. Look at the quadruple amputees and say, well, it's going to be tough if I don't get my free government cheese every month. Yeah, it is tough. And sometimes civilization requires sacrifices. For about 150,000 years, it's been the men. Now it's your turn, ladies. And you don't even have to go to war. And if they don't want that, then how can they want political equality, right? Sadly, my name is Private. Well, that's an odd name. Says, thank you for all that you do, Steph. Your shining forehead provides the guiding light for many, and in these dark times, it's invaluable. Much love from Southern California. Thank you very much. Mexifornia is a lovely place. Sparky says, what are some faults you would say you have and are working on? I know the comment section on YouTube have called you out a few times en masse when you unjustifiably go after a guest. Love your enriching show. Uh, yeah, so false. That's uh, that's perfectly fair. So I got some comments when I was giving the speech at EU, like, don't lean on things, don't put your hands in your pockets. It's like, and I thought, well, why was I doing that? And I thought, no, no, I, I know why I was doing that. I was doing that so as not to appear too threatening. Because, you know, threatening ideas in a politically charged atmosphere to a bunch of legislators, it's okay to uh, put on a clown nose when you're speaking truth to power. So I did put... Um, submissive body language to some degree into the speech so that I did not appear overly threatening. If I had been very, very commanding, it would have right caused, I mean, already some women seem to have an allergic reaction to the truth. So yeah, things that I'm working on, I think that um, uh, sometimes I can be a bit punchy down on, on Twitter. Uh, I think sometimes that uh, I can degrade the nobility of what I do with, with fairly inconsequential spats, but they're kind of fun, so it's a little tempting. Um, I do, you know, I, I I was just talking about this with a friend today. Like, I do have some concerns about, you know, Leonardo da Vinci at the end of his life said, I can't believe how little use I put to the talents that God gave me. And I just, I know I have a lot of abilities. And I, I just, I really, really, like, every couple of days I check in with myself and say, okay, well, am I doing as much as humanly possible to help fix the world? And the problem is if I do too much, the blowback can be too intense and that silences me. So it is... Uh, finding that balance is really, really tough, and I'm constantly readjusting what it is that I do in order to to do that. So, all right. Ah, let's see here. Okay, let's just do one more. Oh, Adam says, uh, thanks for answering my question. Love your show, and I'm sorry for not donating earlier. Yeah, well, I, looks, I appreciate that. Look, oh, yeah, and I was also like, I was half and half about putting a, a like it was only a, about a minute of a donation pitch at the beginning of the EU speech. But then I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll re-upload it without a donation pitch at the beginning because if I want to share it to new people, new people aren't going to have a history and aren't going to be interested in donating. But here's the thing about donating. donating. Partly it's for me, of course, right? But, but partly for you as well. Our minds follow our resources. So if somebody says, I really love to read, but never buys any books, their unconscious processes that reality that they're not buying books and says, okay, well, you don't really care to read that much. You're kind of hypocritical. You can say it, but I know, I know the facts, right? I know the facts. 
And in the same way, if you're like, well, I really value philosophy, but not to the point where I'm willing to spend 20 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month on it. Okay, well, your unconscious is like, okay, well, it's kind of a hobby then. It's, I guess it's something you like to consume. Like you might like to read diet books, but you're not actually going to change your diet. Like you just find to read diet books, right? And you may say, well, I really care about philosophy, but, you know, if I'm the philosopher that you think is doing the best work, then you, you won't like 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month or whatever. Well, your unconscious says, okay, well, philosophy isn't worth two lattes a month to you. So, you know, I guess it's kind of a fun hobby. But your, your unconscious takes your resource commitments the most seriously. Like if you start donating, it's like, okay, well, wait, we're actually doing this? And then it starts to realign itself around philosophy. But your unconscious is constantly scanning the potential for surface talk or hypocrisy or just saying stuff and, and then just ignores it. So it's for you as well. Uh, and, and you could say largely. Uh, Great Barrier Queefs says, is it safe to assume climate change is caused by white devil fascist orange man bad? <laughs> yeah, climate change. If you want to solve climate change, just buy a bunch of coal and bury it in the ground. <laughs> anyway. All right. So should we close it off? I really, really appreciate that. I'm just going to have a quick look in the general chat. Chat. And uh, see if there's anything else that I need to answer i don't think anything at the moment listen thousands of you dropping by read the ignored super chats <laughs> see here's the thing i would love to some messages such as potential spam may not be visible i would love to read the super chats what did i miss um, okay i'll i find okay you know yeah i work for you let me go back here oh yes fault you have yes thank you for all you do shining forehead uh susceptible women gleaned off follow a guy about russia Oh, well, someone sent something here, but there's no message. It's a kind donation. Thank you. But there's no message here. What does it say? I give me options. No, I'm not going to report. Thank you. <laughs> Do you consider the Portuguese people as white? So, yeah, white general European cluster, uh, particularly around the 100 IQ. So uh, Grant says, love your show. My wife and I learned so much from you. when we're raising our children peacefully. Hi from New Zealand. Hi back. Am I back? I may be back. So, how can we counter Soren? We can still counter Soren if we act quickly. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. I really, really appreciate your time. This flies by two and a quarter hours. What a, what a great way to spend some time. And, you know, thanks. I guess the Church of Reason is uh, closing <laughs> for the day. And have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful evening. Uh, again, please, if you can share my speech at the EU. It's really, really important. Um, you can, of course, go to my um, channel and, and just, it's recent, and, and just share it uh, wherever you can. would be hugely helpful. Very much appreciated. And don't forget to check out my documentary, fdrurl.com forward slash Poland, uh, and you'll love it. And uh, yeah, Essential Philosophy, the new book, doing well, getting good reviews, and you should check that out. And yeah, I've got more UPB rebuttals on the way. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, there was a guy, Rationality Rules, he did a UPB thing. I didn't even see it, but it came out about two years ago, a year and a half ago, something like that. And uh, it was very interesting. It's a long rebuttal, but uh, I did record it, and it was very, very interesting. So thanks, everyone, so much. Love you guys. Appreciate your support. And I will talk to you oh so soon. Well, thank you so much for enjoying this latest free domain show on philosophy. And I'm going to be frank and ask you for your 
help, your support, your encouragement, and your resources. Please like, subscribe, and share, and all of that good stuff to get philosophy out into the world. And also, equally importantly, go to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show, to give me the resources that I need to bring more and better philosophy to an increasingly desperate world. So thank you so much for your support, my friends. freedomain.com forward slash donate.